0: or even a glass of wine, (laughs) if it's that time. And get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi, friends. Today's episode with Dr. Gottfried is truly an amazing episode. In the first half, we really tackle the brain-body connection and how things like your diet and environment can really influence your brain and how you're feeling. And then in the second half, we go really deep into intermittent fasting and how it specifically affects women. So, ladies, you're really going to love that second half. Before we jump into the episode, we'd love to tell you about our supporters of this episode. First of all, we are supported by one of my favorite companies in the entire world, and that is Audible. You know, I'm obsessed with Audible. Whenever I talk about the audiobooks I'm listening to on the podcast, I am always listening to them through Audible. Audible is the world's largest supplier of audiobooks, and it's really an amazing, fantastic resource and interface. I know I often talk about the nonfiction books I'm listening to. Right now, by the way, if you're wondering, I am currently listening to Keto Diet by Dr. Josh Axe and also The Power, which is the follow-up to the very popular book, The Secret. But of course, they have audiobooks in all different genres. They're super easy to download, and then you can listen to them on the Audible app, where you can take notes, create clips, and even share the books with friends. With Audible, you own your books, you're not renting them. You can access them anywhere, anytime, and if you didn't like your audiobook for some reason, guess what? You can swap it for another. With an Audible membership, which of course I have, <laughs> you get one free audiobook each month, exclusive sales, and also 30% off of all regularly priced audiobooks, which is amazing. And of course, here's the free stuff for you. If you go to audible.com ifpodcast or text ifpodcast to 500500, 500, you'll get a free 30-day trial, which includes a free audiobook. So if you're not already an Audible member, you cannot pass this up. So again, go to audible.com slash IFpodcast or text IFpodcast to 500500 500 and listen for a change. We're also supported by Bio Optimizers. We had Wade Lightheart on the podcast for two different episodes where we really went into the digestive process from beginning to end. And it was fascinating. We got so much amazing listener feedback from those episodes and wade actually founded bioptimizers to fix his own digestion and now they make an amazing line of supplements to tackle all different types of digestive issues for example i love their p3om probiotic they even have a video online of the probiotic digesting a piece of meat that's how powerful that probiotic is also has amazing immune supportive and antiviral properties bioptimizers also make supplements to help your stomach acid production Digestive enzymes to help you digest your food, and they even make a supplement that can help protect you from gluten. I kid you not. And of course, we've got a discount for our listeners. If you go to biooptimizers.com IFpodcast and use the code IFpodcast at checkout, you'll receive 20% off your order. And then we do have one more new supporter that we're really, really excited about, and I'll let Jen talk about that in the middle of the podcast. Hint, it relates to toxins and being smelly and not being smelly, and so many things. (laughs) All right, now enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 101 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I am here with a very, very special guest today, we have dr sarah gottfried on the podcast she is an md she's a graduate from harvard she's a three time new york times best-selling author of the hormone cure the hormone reset diet and also younger and she has a fantastic new book that just came out in march and it is called brain body diet 40 days to a lean calm energized and happy self and friends you're going to love this book. It is so amazing, so wonderful. It really gets into the nitty-gritty of hormones. And the I mean, by the title, you can tell the connection between our bodies and how that affects our brains. And it also gets into intermittent fasting a little bit. So it really just covers everything that so many of our listeners are really, really passionate about. So thank you so much, Dr. Gottfried, for being here with us.
1: Oh, I'm thrilled to be here.
0: So I guess there's so much that I would love to cover, but I guess just to start off, would you like to tell listeners a little bit about why you personally came to write Brain Body Diet?
1: Yeah, the way that I came to write about it was that I've been a gynecologist for 25 years. I've thought a lot about the female body. I'm board certified in everything that can go wrong with the female body, and I like to kind of flip that around and say... Okay, let's focus on what can go right with the female body. How do we make that happen? How do we really connect the innate intelligence of the female body? But what I realized when I was in my 40s was that even though I knew how to create natural hormone balance, it wasn't enough. And so I was confronted with my own brain-body disconnections, which hopefully we'll get into because I think it's something that many women struggle with. I started to have anxiety, I had, you know, this number that kept rising on the bathroom scale, even though I was doing things like intermittent fasting, turns out, I wasn't doing it correctly. And I I just started to realize that I had all these toxins, I had this, you know, brain trash, I had problems with my gut brain axis, meaning the way that my gut was talking to my brain. And so I had all of these issues that were not addressed, even though some might say that I was a perfect hormonal specimen. So that's what got me to write this. I really realized that I had my own issues with the brain-body connection. And then once I started to understand it and look for it in my patients, I realized, oh my gosh, 80% of my patients have this too. So that's why I wrote the book.
0: Yeah, when I was reading your book, so much of it resonated with me. I, I, I cannot even describe because I know for me personally, I was always doing pretty well health wise, it seemed. And then I actually started getting a lot of brain issues, anxiety, just all of these really weird symptoms. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And people would be like, Oh, you know, it's probably just, you know, all in your head. And for me, it ended up being a very definite body connection that related to like, for me, heavy metals, some other conditions. So reading your book was just really, really resonated with me. And it really covers such a broad spectrum of the potential causes of like a dysfunctional brain body connection. So to go into that a little bit, what are the symptoms of a dysfunctional brain body connection? How do we know if it's all in our head or if it actually is something that can be addressed and that is wrong, or maybe nothing's all in our head, or maybe it's all in our head?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would say it's very rarely all in your head. I think we're taught that by mainstream medicine, we're certainly taught that when it comes to some of the most common symptoms like anxiety, burnout, depression. I mentioned that my weight was rising. So I had a a rising body weight set point, I couldn't burn fat, no matter what I did. I had brain fog, insomnia. I also had some addictive tendencies that started to show up after age 35. And by that, I mean, I would have a glass of wine pretty much every night. Sometimes it turned into two. You know, I didn't meet criteria for being an alcoholic. But if you put it together with how I exercise, which is, you know, kind of this attitude, if some is good, more is better. I have the same approach to online shopping. I just noticed that I had this addictive tendency, something that I like to think of as spread addiction. So that's also a sign of a dysfunctional brain-body connection. There's other things too, attention deficit, which I also started to have after age 40, even sugar cravings, a sense of churn or overwhelm. I think of those as kind of proxies for anxiety. And this is one I really hated. When I was in my 40s, I started to have some very subtle, very early memory loss. So I'd have a word on the tip of my tongue mid-conversation. And I noticed that I started to pick, you know, kind of my second choice word. And so those are some common things that can begin after age 35. And unless you're attuned to them, unless you have a sense of, oh, wow, this might be a symptom of brain-body disconnect, what tends to happen is that you go to your doctor and you say, you know, I'm more anxious than I was last year. And you end up with a pharmaceutical, which does not address the root cause of this brain-body out of balance.
0: And so what is likely the root cause in this imbalance?
1: Well, I practice personalized lifestyle medicine, also known as precision medicine or functional medicine. And so we we do root cause analysis all day long. I mean, that's really, I think what sets us apart from mainstream medicine. So the causes are toxins, first and foremost. Second, I would say a gut brain axis that has lost its integrity. And we can get into the details of that because that sounds kind of not so easy to understand. A third is your stress reaction. And by this, I mean the control system for your hormones. So in scientific language, that's the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal thyroid gonadal axis. That's such a mouthful, but it's basically your stress response system. And it turns out if you're like me, if you're kind of a high cortisol person who you know, is kind of ambitious and hard-driving and really busy, it can really disrupt your other hormones. And that can lead to some of these brain-body disconnections that we're talking about. And then another one is a brain that's injured, a brain on fire, a brain that has inflammation, which was what I noticed in myself starting in 2015 and led to writing this book. And then I would say a fifth category is your mitochondria. So the mitochondria, as you probably have heard, are the little powerhouses inside your cells. And if they start to get gunked up, maybe from eating too much refined carbohydrate, or maybe even not getting the metabolic rest that you need, such as with an intermittent fasting protocol, your mitochondria may not be able to serve you. So you may feel fatigued. You may feel, you know, especially when you exercise, that you just don't have that power, that sense of agency that you used to have. So those are the main root causes that I think of.
0: Yeah, so basically there's a lot of potential root causes. And I know that can sound a little bit overwhelming maybe to people because there are so many potential things, but that's what I really loved about your book was that it really it got into the details of everything and it really provided a step-by-step look at all of these causes and how to really ascertain, you know, which Potential causes might be a problem for any individual. So it really helps with, you know, the overwhelming aspect that can come from, oh, how do I, you know, figure out what is the root cause and how to address it?
1: That's a really important point, Melanie, because, you know, if you have a disrupted brain-body connection like I did, it can be totally overwhelming to try to figure this out. And the good news is you're not alone. You don't have to figure this out on your own. And what I tried to do with this book is to really create questionnaires at the beginning of most of the chapters so that you have a sense of, oh, okay, it's my gut brain axis that's disrupted. That's what I need to focus on for the next 40 days. Or it's, you know, this problem with the mitochondria that I need to focus on, or it's toxins. I need to go through a detoxification. So I've hopefully, you know, kind of taken that piece of figure it out on your own. And sorry, mainstream medicine isn't going to help you much. And, you know, really brought this way of looking at the female body and made it much more accessible.
0: Yeah, that really came across to me in the book. And I loved having the quizzes that you could take and, you know, tally up and see where you are and what might be the problem. And I do think what is really encouraging is that I think for a lot of people, and you discuss this in your book, but it's possible to have a lot of. Root causes, you know to yes. have like a lot of these problems. yes, but I think the good thing is once you start addressing you know one thing that you'll most likely get on this healing train and other things will heal as well.
1: yeah, that's a really important point because once healing begins, I think we should you know kind of pause a few beats here because I get super excited about all the science and the details and the data. But the truth is, healing occurs in the parasympathetic nervous system. And what that means is that in your nervous system, your autonomic nervous system, there's two halves. One half is the sympathetic nervous system. That's kind of the on button. That's the fight, flight, freeze. It's the the part of the nervous system that helps you be productive and really accomplish a lot. And then there's the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest half of the autonomic nervous system. That's where all the healing and repair occurs. And so this point that you just made that once you start the healing process, once you start to create that sense of balance between the sympathetic nervous system, the on button and the parasympathetic nervous system, the off button, then you set yourself up for this healing conversation in the body. And it it begins to repair the brain body connection. You know, it sounds ambitious, it sounds like a lot of work, but it's really these baby steps that aggregate into major transformation.
0: There was one quote that just really, really resonated with me in your book, and it was when you were talking about like a hybrid car. I just read this and I highlighted it and started, and I was like, I'm going to write this everywhere. Basically, you said that staying motivated was a process, and that it was like a hybrid car that goes far on a tank of gas. And you said you don't need a full tank to keep driving the car; you simply need to watch the gauge and not run out of fuel. And you said that like the process is regenerative, so once the vehicle generates more energy just like the benefits of the brain body diet, it keeps you motivated to stay on the path. And I know that's talking to like the motivation and everything and like the mental side, but I think it goes with like what we were just talking about with a physical healing. It's like, you don't have to be, you know, at no. hundred <laughs> percent right, right at the beginning. You can just start making these changes that you discussed in the book and the motivation and the momentum will breed and the healing can really come. And I just found that so motivational, but very practically implemented as well.
1: Well, thank you, thank you for reading that. Sometimes I have to be reminded of what it is I wrote because I find with a lot of my patients, and I I used to do this too, that it felt like I was writing on fumes. It felt like I was driving a car and like just couldn't quite make it to the gas station. And the truth is, this process of healing and repair is regenerative. Like it helps to fill your tank to drive the car and to drive the car in. Ways that slowly improve upon what you've been doing in the past. And I would even say, you know, that's kind of the first phase. The next phase is to be watching that gauge and really noticing, okay, here are the inputs, you know, the sleep that's seven to 8.5 hours every night with at least 90 to 120 minutes of deep sleep. The 60 minutes of high-intensity interval training that I do four days a week. The connection with my girlfriend. I have a girlfriend that I go either walking, running, or to yoga with every Sunday. So once you get to that next phase, you never let that tank drop below a certain level. You know, maybe it's kind of three quarters full. So yes, it's regenerative. And also we want this self-care in place. These strategies, some of which I highlight in the book that allow you to keep that regeneration going. And we're kind of being mindful of that gauge so that we're never driving on fumes again.
0: But we people often think that, you know, our brains naturally worsen as we age and that, you know, once things go wrong, they're only going to get worse. But would you like to talk a little bit about neurogenesis and neuroplasticity, like the potential for getting better and growing growing new brain cells and new
1: neurons? Yeah. Well, here's what we know. You know, when I when I went through my medical training, I graduated from Harvard Medical School twenty-five years ago, we were taught that your brain continues to grow and expand and make new nerve cells until about age twenty-five or twenty-six. And then it's just downhill from there. <laughs> it's a yes. it was kind of a bleak picture, right? So That's what we've been told. Right, for so sure. that's what we we're told. And it turns out that's not true. So You can keep the neuroplasticity going. And in this sense, neuroplasticity is a very positive thing. It's the growth and kind of nurturing of new brain cells and new connections. The connections are called synaptogenesis. The new brain cells are called neurogenesis. So you want both to happen as you get older. So you can keep that going as long as you set the intention and you're putting in the actions that generate it. So I talk about a lot of those actions in the book. They have to do with the way that you eat, move, think, feel, connect, and supplement. And so, you know, what we've learned is that there are certain parts of the brain, especially the hippocampus. I love the word hippocampus, because it has hips in it. So hippocampus. Oh <laughs> <laughs> I always think of like a hippo, but yeah. Hips. <laughs> well, the hippocampus is the part of the brain that's involved in memory consolidation, as well as emotional regulation. And we know that there's Key differences between the female brain and the male brain. I'm going to go off on a tangent here for a moment. We know that women have, on average, a bigger hippocampus than men, and this makes total sense, right? Like because women are better at connection, we're better at emotional regulation. You know, I'm I'm speaking generally here, and I'm not speaking from a place of one up or one down. I'm not really interested in that conversation of you know this is how the male and female brain differs and you know, one sex is better at math and reading maps and another sex is better at emotional connection. But I think it's interesting to, to notice that if you look at brain scans, if you look at imaging of the brain, radiologists can tell with 85% certainty, whether a brain is female or male. Oh, wow. So the hippocampus is where this neuroplasticity keeps going especially if you cultivate it especially if you're making those new connections especially if you're hanging out with your girlfriends especially if you're not eating too much sugar especially if you are getting that exercise that your body craves and needs and you're not you know sitting at a desk all day long so there are certain activities that can keep that neurogenesis going and you know what happens with a lot of people that i see in my practice is that as they get older they kind of give up there's sort of an age at which they give up and they start sitting more they start binge watching tv on the sofa more they sort of begin to disengage with life and i just i never want that to happen for those of you who are listening to us because you really have a choice here about continuing that neurogenesis process and to continue creating new brain cells and to keep those connections, the synaptogenesis going.
0: Yeah. So that's so motivational to hear for listeners. And so this, obviously it's all addressed in your book in great detail, but what does this practically look like? Your, like the brain body protocol. So of course (laughs) a listener would want to read the whole book to get the whole protocol, but what are those small steps that listeners can begin to take to address this disconnection and start healing?
1: Yeah. Well, I'll start with the headlines. I think it starts with food. We know that food is the most important factor when it comes to the brain body connection. I feel like it's the thing I learned the least about in medical school and maybe the most important factor when it comes to taking care of patients. And I think a lot of your, your listeners know this already. Because if you listen to the intermittent fasting podcast, you care about intermittent fasting, you care about food, not just food quality and quantity, but also the timing of it. So I would say it starts with food and intermittent fasting is my obsession. So hopefully we'll get into some of the details about intermittent fasting and how that maps onto your hormonal balance and weight loss, increasing health span, improving brain performance. What I do in the book with the protocol is I have a 40-day container. And that's very specific because we know that 40 days is how long it takes to create a new habit. So it's very hard for people to create a new habit in three days or seven days or two weeks. 40 days is kind of the minimum that I've found over the past 25 years to really implement the kind of habit that sticks. And I'm not interested in our listeners losing weight, and then, you know, gaining it back and then some, I'm not interested in you reconnecting your brain body and then losing the connection again. I want this to create a sustained improvement in your health. So it takes 40 days, there's an emphasis on what I would call psychobiotics and behavior we can talk in a little more detail about that. There's also supplements. I often find that supplements can be very helpful. I don't think of them as a replacement for eating the best food quality that you can afford and getting the timing down right. And also the mind-body practices that I emphasize in the book. I'm also yoga and meditation teacher. So, you know, that's part of it. It changes the structure and function of the brain. And we all should be doing it as a way of buffering stress. So those are some of the headlines for the protocol. And each protocol is kind of different depending on what your symptoms are. If your main symptom is overwhelm and anxiety, then there's a protocol that addresses the food that's most important for ameliorating anxiety. It addresses the mind-body techniques that really help the most with anxiety. It addresses the supplements, the natural ingredients that are the most proven with randomized trials to influence anxious feelings. And it goes through the other symptoms that we've talked about as well, including addictive tendencies, depression, early memory loss, toxic overload, and I'm probably forgetting a couple, but those are off the top of my head.
0: Yeah, no, it's wonderful. And it's so comprehensive and all goes together. And it is really interesting, like you were saying with our listeners being into intermittent fasting, that they likely appreciate the health aspect of food and diet. And I think that's something... That we really find that, like, a lot of people will start doing intermittent fasting to lose weight. Like, that will be the driving reason that they start it. But oftentimes, they find that it just helps them, makes them feel so good with the cleansing aspect and the health benefits that they do start becoming more and more interested in how food makes them feel and how diet affects them and how, you know, natural life stressors. And it's sort of like a snowball effect like we were talking about earlier, because once you start, you know, really tuning in with one aspect of your body and health, you become more in tune, I believe, with the rest of it as well. And so for our listeners practicing intermittent fasting... Would you like to get into a little bit of the specifics about how intermittent fasting factors into your brain-body protocol? Because, obviously, I would love which we could go over the whole protocol and everything. But if we're going to focus, I guess, on one aspect, that would be a wonderful one to zoom in on.
2: We are so excited to be sponsored by Native Deodorant today. You may have heard me say before that I was having no luck finding a natural deodorant that worked for me. Then, one day, a friend of mine recommended Native. I placed my first order, and I was hooked. Native is formulated without aluminum, parabens, or talc. It's filled with ingredients found in nature, such as coconut oil, which is antimicrobial, shea butter, which acts as a moisturizer and emollient, and tapioca starch, which absorbs wetness. It's made in the USA with ingredients thoughtfully sourced from around the world. But the best part is, it works. Here in Georgia, it gets hot. And if a deodorant can work during a Georgia summer, you know it's a winner. Normally, I'm very sensitive to fragrances, but I love Native's options, many of which are seasonal and limited edition. My favorite scent is their most popular, Coconut and Vanilla. They also offer an unscented formula and one that is baking soda-free for those with sensitivities. For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code IFPODCAST during checkout. You'll receive free shipping and returns, so you have nothing to lose. You can also subscribe and save 17% on recurring orders. That's nativedeodorant.com. And remember, use promo code IFPODCAST to save 20% on your first order.
1: Well, I start talking about intermittent fasting in the detox protocol. So, you know, I used to think of detoxification as being a luxury, something that I would do, you know, maybe once or twice a year. And as I started to measure toxic load in my patients, I realized it's no longer a luxury, like it's really a requirement of modern life. And so I think intermittent fasting, one of its most important roles is to help clean out the cell of all the debris, all the gunk. And there's a few scientific words for this, which don't matter as much as if you follow an intermittent fasting protocol, you are going to be doing this. It's what's happening behind the scenes.
0: I will interrupt you very briefly. Is one of those words autophagy?
1: Yeah. So autophagy is definitely one of them. And there's a few others. You know, the way I think of it is it's kind of like a shampoo for your cells. And unfortunately, our cells just get all of this, you know, like, proteins that are not folded properly, almost like bed sheets that just kind of get messed up in the laundry, the linen closet, we need to get rid of organelles that are no longer functional, we have to just kind of clean the slate. And so that's what you get with intermittent fasting. There's a lot of intermittent fasting protocols out there. Many of them have been well researched. I just did a pretty massive literature search looking at the 5-2 protocol and the alternate day fasting and modified alternate day fasting. And what I found in my own practice is that what seems to work the best is the 16-8 protocol. So I want to hear more from you, Melanie, about you know what it is you guys talk about and what it is you advise listeners. But 16-8 is what I really encourage my patients to perform. And what I found is that when I first started teaching my patients about weight loss and about longevity and later health span. It began with a focus on calorie restriction because that was really kind of the prevailing theory 25 years ago, and we've since realized that's a bad idea, it's too stressful. So calorie restriction could be successfully followed by maybe two to five percent of my patients. whereas intermittent fasting with the 168 protocol, I find that 90 to 95% of my patients are successful with it. Not all of them can jump immediately to 16.8. Sometimes we do a 12.12 and then a 14.10 kind of on ramp. And we can talk a little bit about how to do that because the female body sometimes takes a little bit longer to adjust to the hormesis, kind of the stress of intermittent fasting. But that's what I tend to advise. It's what I advise in the book and it's what I advise with my patients.
0: Yeah. So, so many things to jump in there. So our listeners, they love, they love the nitty gritty science of everything. So feel free to be as specific or sciency or anything as you like when you, when we discuss this, but yeah, just a little bit about our podcasts and our listeners. So both Jen and I, we both personally practice a one meal a day approach. That's what we, I mean, that's what it's like known as in the intermittent fasting world. And that materializes in a few different ways. Some people literally do count the hours. So it comes out similar to like 16 eight, but a shorter window typically. So like four hours, five hours, it might literally be on the clock. I actually don't count hours at all anymore. When I first started intermittent fasting, I did it by counting my fasting hours. And I tried to go around, actually around like 20 to 24 hours, and then I would have like one meal. But now I pretty much just eat a long, luscious, drawn-out dinner every night. And I find that works the best for me. As far as our listeners, a large portion of them do do the one meal a day approach, like I just said, whether it be counting the hours or just doing like a meal type situation. But then we have a lot that subscribe to 16-8. I do feel like sixteen eight is a really, really nice, like it's a really friendly approach for a lot of people. Like it just really, people can do it, like you said. They don't feel as restricted. They can make it encompass the meals that they like. I find, and I think they find a lot of benefit from it. And then we do have a few listeners, but it's a lower percentage who do the more like off, off-brand, the more you know tangential ones. Like, but also more extreme ones, like five two or the specific alternating protocols. It's just wonderful to have you to talk about this because we do get a lot of questions from women specifically about intermittent fasting as implemented by women, because there is a whole, there's definitely a huge fearful mindset and, you know, potential discussion to be had around the benefits, even the safety of intermittent fasting as practiced by women and the female body and how it responds to certain stressors. So in general, From hearing everything that you said and from reading your book, it seems that intermittent fasting can be very wonderful for women, but can it also be a negative stress if practiced like in a quote, incorrect way? Or how would a female know if intermittent fasting is benefiting her or hindering her?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think there's the subjective experience of intermittent fasting, which is how do you feel? Does it improve your mental focus? What we talk about is mental acuity. You know, what happens with intermittent fasting is I think of it as a backdoor to ketosis. And that's probably a whole other conversation because what I found with taking care of patients and in myself is that nutritional ketosis works so well for men. And it works so well for about half of my female patients. And the other half of my female patients just really struggle with it. They don't get the benefits that men experience. They sometimes have an increase in inflammation. 45% of them have menstrual irregularity, which we should talk about a little bit. And also, many of them have adrenal and thyroid issues. So what I like about intermittent fasting is that it's much more akin to how our DNA evolved millions of years ago. And I'm sure you've talked about this on your podcast before, you know, our DNA evolved, so that we were eating food a few hours after the sun comes up. That's when we're most insulin sensitive. And that's when you will do best with eating carbohydrates, if you have normal insulin signaling. And then our insulin sensitivity decreases towards the end of the day. So our ancestors usually stopped eating a few hours before the sun went down. And they what we know is that that period of metabolic rest, whatever it is, in my case, it's 16 hours, really does the body good. So that's when the autophagy occurs, as well as other cellular processes. And it helps with the insulin pathway, which is so important in terms of health span, as well as losing weight. So the other issue that I was alluding to here is that starting about three hours before you go to bed, so this is on average you know, about 6 to 7 p.m., melatonin begins to rise in the body. So it's one of those circadian hormones that helps you sleep. And when melatonin rises, it sends a signal to the pancreas that it doesn't need to work as hard in terms of producing insulin. So you become more insulin resistant beginning a few hours before you go to bed. And what happens for, you know, kind of my untrained patients when they first come to see me is that they are eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner with snacks in between. And their last meal is often at a restaurant and it's several hours after the sun goes down. That's when they are the most insulin resistant. And that's when they're eating the truffle fries and the other things that can really pack on the weight and lead to a problem with not just your insulin, but also with your blood sugar. And then that disrupts the gut-brain axis. It's responsible for about 60% of cognitive decline. So we definitely know that the timing is important. We know that women are more sensitive to some of the signals that are happening with both intermittent fasting and also with nutritional ketosis. And the reason why I like intermittent fasting better than nutritional ketosis is because Most of us are getting into ketosis after a 16-hour fast. For people who are more resistant or more metabolically inflexible, it may take longer than 16 hours to get into ketosis. And by this, I I mean you're measuring your blood spot and you have a fasting ketone level in your blood of 0.5 or higher. I typically get to about 0.9 to 1.0 at 16 hours. And so it's a backdoor to ketosis. You get into this Ketotic state, and then you eat and you get out of ketosis. So you're cycling in and out of ketosis, you're creating metabolic flexibility, and that's really good for your brain body.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. I think the word metabolic flexibility is one of our favorites on this podcast. Because we also get, you know, a ton, ton, ton of questions about like the keto diet specifically. And both Jen and I in the past have played around with that. And I do think it does work really well for a lot of people. But then it doesn't work so well for a lot of people. And in a way, with intermittent fasting, I love what you said about it being like the backdoor approach to ketosis. It's kind of like it lets you have your your carbs and eat them too in a way because you get the best of both worlds. You can dip into that ketogenic state temporarily during the day but then still have your carbs – and yeah, I, I just think it really, really works for a lot of people. Is there always potential to start some sort of intermittent fasting? Or do you think for some women it's gonna be like a no-go?
1: I think the success rate is actually ninety to ninety-five percent with intermittent fasting. When I was saying okay, that, okay. when I was saying that it was fifty-fifty, I was talking about nutritional ketosis, so on okay. a ketogenic diet. So I find that the success rate is much, much higher with intermittent fasting but it is still worth talking about the five to 10% who struggle with intermittent fasting. And I don't think it's a good idea. We just don't have enough data for women who are pregnant or breastfeeding. So those are some of the women that I tend to be really cautious with for women who have adrenal dysregulation, or what I think of a little more scientifically as hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis dysregulated. We have to be careful and sometimes they have issues with blood sugar control with swinging too high with their blood sugar and also swinging too low having episodes of hypoglycemia that's one of the things i always get asked about when i talk about intermittent fasting you know what about those of us who have hypoglycemia and so what i found you know i'm someone who struggles with adrenal and thyroid dysfunction myself what i do with those patients is to i recommend that they check their blood sugar There's a lot of different ways to do that. It only costs about $20 to $25 to get a glucose meter. You can get it on various online outlets or at your local pharmacy. And I I think it's valuable to track that because what I see in most of my patients, even the ones who feel like they have episodes of hypoglycemia, is that they get to a blood sugar when they're fasting, say for 16 hours. That's somewhere around 70 to 85. And that's actually okay. Dropping below 70 is where we start to get concerned, and so if I have a patient who's doing that, then I recommend that they, I want to make sure that they're followed by their primary care provider, and I also sometimes have them stabilize with a shorter window, like 12-12 or 14-10. Do that for, you know, two to four weeks as we watch their blood sugar. We can go to a 16-8 protocol, and maybe they just do it one or two days a week as a way of beginning, and they're not doing hard exercise on those days they're doing more adaptive exercise. So there's ways to customize this and to kind of slowly ramp up. Another group of people, and I imagine you've gotten some questions from these folks, are those who are trying to get pregnant. Do you got questions about that about women?
0: Yeah, and I was actually going to say we could while we're talking about all this throw in some specific questions because we have I mean we have like hundreds and hundreds in the books about all these issues. So, for example, Speaking of when trying to conceive or fertility, like we had a question from Melissa, and she said, I am trying to get pregnant with my second child. I still have 20 pounds to lose from my first baby, who is three. Yikes. (laughs) My husband and I just completed a whole 30 and newly discovered IF. Who knows how long it will take for me to get pregnant? And I was considering doing IF until that happens. I made the mistake of Googling, is IF safe when attempting? To get pregnant, and I got scared. What are your opinions on doing IF while trying to conceive? She says, Side note, I've done 16.8 the past three days, and I love it. Also, I have no fertility issues or concerns in the past. Thank you so much big hugs. And I do have to put her little postscript. She said, I live in San Diego, but grew up in Marietta, Georgia. So I feel like I could be friends with you both. And Melissa, <laughs> I will say Melissa, my grandparents live in Marietta. So uh-huh. I saw that and I was like, "Oh, maybe I'll read her question for this. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so no, it's a great question though. Dr. Godfried. what are your thoughts? Like we were just saying about doing IF while trying to conceive and how it might affect fertility.
1: What I tell my patients who are trying to conceive is that We want to keep your hormones in balance. And if I take a step back, you know, one of the things that happens for women who are trying to get pregnant is that they often get treated differently by their physicians. This makes me a little bit crazy, but those are the women who often are able to get the hormone panels that I think all women should have access to. So, you know, a lot of doctors will tell women who are not trying to get pregnant that we can't check your hormones. They vary too much during the day. And so, you know, I'm sorry, we're not going to check your blood level of estrogen and progesterone and testosterone and thyroid. And yet if you're trying to get pregnant and you're having any kind of struggles, that's when the entire panel is done. So I just want to put a shout out here that I think everyone should have access to these hormone tests
0: I agree 100%. That's like a passion of mine. I'm like, we need more access to blood testing and, you know, testing these various biomarkers. And it's really frustrating. I think sometimes that, you know, doctors will be really hesitant to, you know, do different tests when it's our bodies. And I think we should have access to that information in an easily accessible manner. Sorry, tangent. I could really feel passionate about that.
1: Well good. Yeah, we've got to change that. Change that conversation. So going back to Melissa, what I tell patients who are my practice is that you know, we pay attention to what's happening with your thyroid. In fact, we keep your thyroid within a tighter range when you're trying to conceive than we do at other times in your life. And again, I don't think there should be a separate set of standards for women who are trying to get pregnant. I think all women should have access to that optimal range. We also want estrogen, progesterone, testosterone to be within balance. Estrogen and progesterone are kind of like a tango that are involved in your ovarian function. And testosterone, if it's too high, can be a marker of polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is the number one cause of infertility or subfertility. So there's these hormones that we want to keep track of. And I encourage people to do a hormone panel, whether you're having issues with fertility or not. Another piece is cortisol. And so I think it's worth talking about cortisol for a moment. It's something I talk about in all of my books, because I think there's such a cost to having a problem with your cortisol. And it's something that often flies below the radar of most mainstream doctors. So if you have high cortisol, it's almost like a bully in your body. I sometimes joke that it's like Michael Cortisol Leone from The Godfather. Is, <laughs> I love that. And so, what it does, if cortisol is too high, which is what I had when I was 35, it will rob you of other hormones. It'll make your progesterone low. And so, then you're more likely to have anxiety and depression. We know 50% of people with depression have high cortisol. It can block your ability to get pregnant. And so, I think tracking cortisol is really important. For some women, They may get overly stressed with intermittent fasting. Now, I've already told you 90 to 95% of my patients do great with intermittent fasting, but there are some women who just get too stressed. They just like think about food too much, you know, whatever it is. They don't respond well to it. But going back to, you know, if I have a patient who is trying to have a second baby and has 20 pounds to lose, which is a very common story there's probably some level of insulin resistance happening in that patient of mine. And so I want to correct her insulin pathway. That's really important. And I think intermittent fasting is one of the best ways to do that. So that's certainly an option. The thing I'm really cautious about, and I, I think this is important, whether you're doing intermittent fasting or you're just you know, want to have regular ovarian cycles before you hit perimenopause or menopause, we have to make sure that you're getting enough calories within an intermittent fasting protocol to not shut down something called luteinizing hormone. So LH pulsatility, I'm going to put on my science hat here for a moment. There's There's a hormone made in your brain called LH luteinizing hormone. It's the hormone that you test for when you have the pee sticks and you're trying to see if you're ovulating. And you pee on those little sticks, hoping that they turn blue or whatever the color is. And LH is the signal that tells your ovaries to release an egg. And what we know from a few researchers is that if you drop down below a certain number of calories each day, and that threshold is something like 13.6 kilocalories per pound of lean body mass. So that's kind of complicated, but I can tell you with my particular weight, I weigh 130 pounds. I have about 100 pounds of lean body mass. And so that means I have to keep my calories above 1,360 kilocalories a day. If you drop below that for a certain number of days, probably something like five days, it can affect your LH pulsatility. So if you are not pulsing your luteinizing hormone, it's going to be very hard to get pregnant. So that's one of the thresholds that I think is important for our listeners who are trying to get pregnant, because sometimes if you are having, for instance, one meal a day, you may not be hitting that threshold that you have. So in my case, it's 1,360 calories, and I have a hard time eating that in a single meal. So that's part of why I use either a six or an eight-hour window, because that allows me to kind of eat the prebiotic foods and to kind of space it out over my eating window so that I'm hitting my minimum threshold to keep cycling.
0: Okay. I am so, so glad you brought that up and clarified that. And I think that's going to help our listeners so much. So it sounds like because a lot of our listeners think it's about the fasting being the problem in a way with the fertility when really it might often be not taking in enough calories and nutrients during the eating window.
1: Well, it it may also be the fasting. I mean, I I think part of what I'm speaking to here is what do we know from a scientific perspective? Mm -hmm. We know for sure that women are so much more sensitive to the calories that they consume compared to men. And so men can do hypocaloric ketosis, as an example, and have no problems with it. 45% of women who go on hypocaloric ketosis have menstrual irregularity because of this issue with luteinizing hormone. So it's a calorie issue. There's probably also fasting issues with some women, not all women. You know, I'm someone who gets stressed pretty easily. I've worked, you know, that's been like a project for all of my life to try to solve that. There are some women who get kind of, it's too stressful for them to eat within a certain window. So my best friend, Joe, for example, I talk about her in all of my books. She's my running buddy that I hang out with every Sunday. When I first started talking to her about the science of intermittent fasting, she said to me, no way, Sarah, like you are a freak of nature who, you know, does these protocols and you're way too aggressive. There's no way I can do that. I would become a social pariah and like my family would disown me. And so she said, no way to a 16-8 protocol, just too stressful for her in her life and so I said, well, how about this? Could you start with a 12,12? Could you start with just doing that you know a couple days a week and kind of see how you feel? So she did that for two weeks and it was no problem. And then I said, okay, let's go to 14,10, do it two days a week and see how it goes. She did that. and then she started doing 16,8, two days a week, and she timed it so that it didn't fall on date night because you know that's like the precious time that she goes out to dinner with her husband. And her biggest issue was that she felt like on certain school days, especially really packed school days, she needed to have some food in the morning. So she was able to kind of shift this and switch with this on-ramp to a 16-8 protocol two days a week. She also had had a long period of time of difficulty with weight loss. And she said to me after doing this for two weeks, oh my gosh, I lost three pounds. I haven't lost three pounds in years. And so that's the kind of benefit that you see when you are getting that regenerative reparative conversation in the body and you're starting to heal that brain body. So, you know, there's many ways to do this. I just want to be cautious to, to not say that it's not the fasting that's stressful because it probably is stressful for some people. It may be in their minds. It might be, you know, kind of their state of mind and how they're approaching it. But for some people it can trigger the stress response.
0: Right. So there's not ever one, you know, one answer. So there's like a holistic, whole, whole perspective and so many factors. And it's really important to be in tune with all of these. So that's, yeah, that's wonderful. And then I will say, especially for some of our listeners who may be newer to our podcast, With the one meal a day approach, it does often materialize as, you know, a very, very short window that would make it really (laughs) difficult to get in adequate nutrition and calories. But then for others, it is a much longer window. So for me, for example, with one meal a day, it ends up – I end up eating for about probably six hours or so. So just to clarify for listeners that if they're confused by the one meal a day terminology, we had a question from Allison, and she's actually – I mean, she's doing a lot. She says she's a 44-year-old mother of three who works full-time. She's been fasting since August, and she really loves the fasting from what it sounds like. But she also incorporates three to four days of 5.30 a.m. boot camp and has lost 25 pounds since January 2018. And she generally does a 19-5 window, also with some longer fasts mixed in, but never more than 25 hours. But she says that she generally eats what she wants with a renewed focus to enjoy and plan my one meal a day to ensure high-quality, nutrient-rich meals. She's doing a lot on the exercise side of things, the fasting side of things, but she is eating a lot and feeling really good about it, it seems. But she says that her boot camp coach was all about IF but cautioned her not to go greater than 16 hours as a woman because the female body – would constantly want to prepare for making a baby. When it does not get the fuel, it will go into overdrive in a way that men do not. And she said that she men see better results with longer fasting. So she said, like, can you please provide some insight about what women need to watch for when fasting so as to not cause hormonal imbalance or reduced results? And she also says, I know men go into fat-burning mode much easier than women, but what are the other key differences? And I will say as a caveat, I've actually done a lot of research on – fat burning mode in men and women. And actually, women do enter fat burning mode. From what I've read, we are adapted to it, which is actually very interesting. I guess the main question to focus on here is, what would be some signs that the fasting may be a stress hormonally? Would it be like just hormonal changes? Would it be you know, an inability to recover? What should women look for specifically?
1: Great question. So I would say a couple of things. And I agree with this coach that Women go into overdrive more easily than men. I wish that weren't the case. I'm a feminist. I, you know, I want there to be no wage gap. I want there to be, you know, egalitarian society. It turns out biologically, women are much more sensitive to the environment. And it makes sense, right? If you think about our paleo ancestors, when they were running around the savannah, if you were stressed, if you, you know, had a tiger hunting you for days and days, that's not the best time to ovulate. It's not the best time to conceive a baby. Probably so, not. <laughs> right? So, we have this ancient system that controls ovulation that men are not affected by. And so, high cortisol, being in a stress state, can lead to difficulty with conception. So, I agree with the boot camp coach on that one. The way that I approach these kind of questions is always to go to the science first and then kind of talk about the caveats because medicine is not just science, but also art. We know that this threshold that I talked about before, the 13.6 kilocalories per pound of lean body mass is essential in terms of making sure within whatever window she's using, she's getting the calories that she needs and that she's above that threshold so that she can continue the luteinizing hormone pulsatility. So what to look for? I would say, first of all, we want to know that our hormones are in balance. And so I think it would be reasonable to do a hormone panel. Hopefully you have a clinician who's willing to do that. You can also do direct-to-consumer testing, things like, I don't know if I can mention these, but like Wellness FX and my Oh, lab. yeah, sure yeah. do. Yeah. So there's lots of places where you could test if, for whatever reason, your doctor is not collaborative and open-minded. A second point, which I think you spoke to a bit, is when I hear about the boot camp, three to four days a week, I think for most people, that's really great. I always sort of wonder, and I kind of hate this a little bit, but I'm going to say it anyway. I always wonder when you're trying to conceive if that's the best form of exercise, And I know that high-intensity interval training is fantastic, kind of regardless of age. It's great for my 14-year-old daughter. It's great for my 72-year-old mother. They do it in different ways, but we know that it's one of the best ways to augment neurogenesis. Is it the best way to get pregnant? I think that's still an open question. There's a few ways to kind of assess that. With a hormone panel, if you're looking at estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, thyroid, including TSH, free T3, free T4, reverse T3. You also want to look at cortisol. So I like to do dried urine testing on my patients. I like to look at the total cortisol that they're making each day, as well as metabolized cortisol, because both of them tell me different things. So that's a panel, a dried urine test, a Dutch test that I find really helpful in this kind of situation. Another test that has more to do with tracking that I especially like with folks like this, who are doing boot camp and considering a baby, I like to track sleep. And so I like to look at recovery, I like to look at heart rate variability or HRV. And what I want to do eventually is kind of understand how much stress do you have in your body? Is the boot camp making you more stress resilient? Or is it adding to your stress load? And so there's many ways to look at that. I like to look at HRV. I use my aura ring to do it. I also use a bracelet called the WellBe to measure my HRV. And here's how I use it. So I measure my HRV every single morning. I also measure it while I sleep with my aura. I measure it every morning. I make matcha tea and I meditate and measure my HRV. If my HRV is above 70, that tells me that I've got that balance between the sympathetic nervous system that we talked about earlier and the parasympathetic nervous system. And so that's a day where I could do high-intensity interval training. I could pretty much just go for it, and my body will respond. If my HRV is less than 50, that tells me it needs to be a more adaptive day. So that's a walk with the dog. It's a yoga class, maybe even restorative yoga. It's a hike. It's more adaptive, restorative activity. If I go to boot camp with an HRV less than 50, I'm going to be miserable. I'm not going to perform well. I'm more likely to have injury and I'm not going to recover well. So I would say tracking is also a really valuable consideration here for Allison and for others like Allison to to look at, okay, are you getting the 7 to 8.5 hours of sleep every night? Are you getting the 90 minutes plus of deep sleep? Are you getting the REM sleep that you need? Do you hit that recovery index that you need to be able to show up for the boot camp and really perform well and what's happening with your HRV. I'm
0: so glad you brought up the heart rate variability. That's been on my, t- I'm almost embarrassed to say I haven't started doing that yet because I keep reading about the, you know, the wonderful information you can gain from it. A listener emailed us yesterday about it and was like, this is how you can tell if stress is being, you know, negative or positive in a way and and how your stress levels are on a given day. So I'm jumping That's in. That's right. I'm committing. Yeah,
1: good. Okay. <laughs> right now, I'll report back. I want to hear how it goes for you. But, you know, we're heading, I would say, a big part of what I do is education of clinicians and practitioners. And I, I think we're heading with our broken healthcare system, we're heading away from medicine for the population to medicine for the individual. And so this reader that wrote into you about HRV, I totally agree with her. And the way that you assess kind of whether the amount of stress that you have on your plate is the right amount for you, because you don't want too much and you don't want too little, is to measure these things like cortisol, both free and also metabolized total cortisol, as well as things like HRV, because it tells you about that balance between synthetic and parasympathetic and also how your recovery is. That allows you to personalize and to really figure out, okay, here are the lifestyle choices that are really good for me and you may find you know that a 168 protocol is the best for your hrv and when you're more aggressive like a you know maybe 186 your hrv drops like that's important information we want to figure out like what's what's the best thing for you because it's probably different than it is for the next person
0: yeah. just so that listener knows uh, that email came from Jennifer and she said that there is a way to objectively measure the cumulative stress on our bodies. And she was saying it's heart rate variability. And she said how amazing it was and that if your body is too stressed, that evaluating your HRV is how you can indicate when you should take it easy It's great to make sure you're not overstressing your body. It reduces the risk of injury as we are more likely to sustain an injury when our body is stressed. And she said she personally uses HRV for training app and that there are also HRV monitors, some Apple watches as well. So I'll actually put links. So for listeners, if you go to ifpodcast.com slash episode 101, that's where we'll have the show notes for today. I'll put links to everything that we discussed. And I know Dr. Godfrey, though we probably need to end our conversation soon. I was wondering if I could just one last question, because I know listeners, we get so many questions about fasting and menstrual cycles. For example, just really quickly, like Madison wrote into us and she said that she started IF and she almost instantly got her period early, that before that it was always regular. So she wanted to know how is IF affecting her hormones? Are there warning signs to look for? But we do just in general get a lot of questions about women starting IF and they see changes in their menstrual cycles. I guess briefly, is that a problem if there are changes in the menstrual cycles? Is it something that should be taken into consideration or do you think things will they will even out or fix themselves after people get used to IF?
1: Also a great question. So I have to be a little cautious with my answer and here's why. We used to think that if you had a regular bleeding, that she didn't really need to worry about it until after age 40. And now we know that's not the case. What actually matters is your risk of having something serious going on in your uterus. And whether you're intermittent fasting or not, if you have an early cycle or you have less than 21 days from the start of one period to the start of the next, you really need to talk to your gynecologist about it. So I don't know about this particular woman and what's happening with her insulin and her blood sugar. But if, she, if there are issues with insulin and blood sugar, it puts you at greater risk of things like precancer of the endometrial lining. So it's something that you want to address with your gynecologist. Now, that being said, I can also tell you, I think over time, your body adjusts, like your body is an adaptation machine. And as we talked about, It is not meant to be adapted to breakfast, lunch, and dinner and snacks in between. It is meant to be adapted to eating within a restricted window, like an eight-hour window. And for some people, a six-hour window. And for some people, that may be a little too stressful. When you start to make this change and you're in that adaptation phase, yes, if it's less than 21 days between your cycle, you need to get medical attention. But for some people, it could be that their progesterone is a little bit lower, maybe because their cortisol is a little bit higher as a result of the stress of adjusting to an intermittent fasting protocol. And if that happens, it can cause your cycle to come early. The other issue, as we've talked about kind of a lot, is the LH pulsatility. And so if you're restricting your calories because you're eating within a restricted window, that may affect your LH pulsatility and lead to an irregular cycle. Ketosis on its own can do that too. So I feel like we've talked about some of those things already. I just want to add that I don't want to falsely reassure people. Sometimes there can be structural reasons for your period to come early, not just the intermittent fasting, but fibroids or polyps or precancer or even cancer. And so I don't want to falsely reassure people.
0: Okay. So for all of our listeners who do write in with questions about changing menstrual cycles, definitely a comprehensive picture is important. Make sure you're working with a gynecologist, a medical practitioner, so you can get to the root cause of those fluctuations. And intermittent fasting may or may not be playing a part in that, is what the takeaway that I'm getting from you. You got it. Awesome. So thank you so much, Dr. Gottfried, for coming on our podcast. I think you answered so many questions that our listeners have been having surrounding the brain-body connection, detox, cycles, fertility, fasting, and really the beneficial, wonderful role that intermittent fasting can have for us and healing our bodies. So I will direct listeners, definitely check out Brain Body Diet. It is so comprehensive, so wonderful. It definitely paints a very broad but also specific and easy to follow picture while also being detailed so it's all the things it has all the information you basically could want about healing your brain body connection how intermittent fasting plays a role in that and just really revolutionizing your life so thank you dr gottfried for being here we'll put links to everything and this has been an absolute honor
1: thank you melanie and thanks everyone for listening
0: thank you so much for listening to the intermittent fasting podcast Please remember, the opinions we discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice. We're not doctors. Check out ifpodcast.com for more information on us. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.